Hi, I'm Dahlia. And I'm Alma. This is Nightmare on Fifth Street, a horror movie podcast. everyone. This week, we're going to be talking about Hatchet. Now, this is interesting because going into the movie, we knew it was part of a series, right, Alma? Yes. But we didn't know that apparently they're like one whole movie divided into three sequels or three movies. We usually pick a movie and we try to do as little background research before we choose a movie. And once we finished it, we realized it was part of a series that is meant to be played one after the other. Our plan was to just discuss this one movie, Hatchet, and then maybe on later on down the road, we would end up talking about the other ones. But now that we know that we have to watch all three to know what happens at the end of this movie, we are going to be doing all three. What we decided to do is for this episode, we're just going to be talking about Hatchet. And on our next episode, we will be doing Hatchet 2 and 3 together, just so that we can get to the ending of this and figure out how this movie ends. We found this movie on Amazon Prime Video, which means it was free for me and Alma, but not really free because we're paying for Amazon Prime. Yes, we have an ongoing prescription with Amazon Prime and other channels. I think we have Shutter. HBO Max, and some others to make sure that we have movies all the time. And that's just like on the general, not even for this podcast at all. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Alma, who's in the cast? We have Joel David Moore playing Ben, Amara Zaragoza playing Mary Beth, Dion Richmond as Marcus, Mercedes McNabb as Misty, And there's a couple of guest appearances by Tony Todd as Reverend Zombie and Robert England as Samson. Yeah. And those were fun surprises in this movie, I think. All right. So let's jump right in. Okay. In the beginning of the movie, we have two dudes fishing. And later on, we find out they're father and son. But I didn't get that right away. Maybe they said so. Hey, dad. But whatever. One of the guys is Robert England. And that's dad. And I was so excited because at first we were like, when I saw him, I was like, is that Robert England? And I'm like, no. So I was thinking this in my brain. And then when Alma said, I think that's Robert England. <laughs> we yeah, went, yeah. But at first he looked too young. I thought he would be older, but it is from 2006. So there you go. But I think Alma thought he looked too young because it's like, what, a little over 20 years after A Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, he looks good. Okay, so they're fishing on the boat. I'm guessing they're fishing. I don't know if they actually ever say they're fishing, but I'm guessing they are and they're not hunting for alligators because suddenly an alligator appears and starts chomping away at the boat and they seem surprised. That made me think uh, they may not be gator hunting. So anyways, like I said, it's nighttime. It's creepy. It's quiet. They just got attacked by an alligator. And okay, so they're like, oh, this is creepy, scary. Let's go to the shore. Is that what happened on my camera? I remember how yeah. they ended up going because the younger guy needed to go pee and that's why they got closer to shore for him and i think the the dad was making fun of him because he was scared oh yeah that's when he refers to him in a not very pc way i remember that now so they make their way to the shore and son's going to be doing his business and all of a sudden robert england gets attacked and 
we're guessing by a gator because it seemed very animalistic. Something attacks him, but we don't really see it. I don't think. We hear the screaming. We're hearing a lot of noise. And all I know is like at this point, there's been several jump scares. You already know the movie's going to have a lot of them because there's a lot of splashing noises. I think they're trying to put you in the mood for it's just going to be like nonstop action maybe. Okay, so the son is, okay, what's going on? He runs out to his dad and he finds his dad dead. Robert England is dead laying on the ground and he's been disemboweled. And I think they did a really good job with that disemboweling. I love that you said dead because he's like way dead. He's gone, man. There's <laughs> yeah, I think Alba was even saying, oh my God, he couldn't be any deader. <laughs> All right, so he finds Robert England dead, his dad. And I think maybe this is when we find out it was his dad. He starts running and then out of the blue again, I'm thinking gator because they did a you know a jump scare with a gator before. I'm thinking gator again and he's getting attacked. He starts to get attacked and it sounds very animalistic not human at all, because then all of a sudden he starts getting ripped apart and there's so much blood. There's so much blood everywhere. And we're like, this is not a person that's tearing him apart, like literally tearing him apart. And oh my God, like, did did I mention all the blood? This is where me and Alma just fucking started laughing hysterically because it was so comical and great because they just had fun with this. They were pulling off things and blood was splurting and then he got torn in half. And I just thought it was so funny because I think at one point the blood was misting. And I'm like, how the fuck does blood mist? But it's misting. Yeah, they had a professional misting machine for all the blood and all the (laughs) gore. And the whole time I am just screaming, is that hands? Where's the damn hatchet? I thought the movie was called Hatchet. Marilyn Manson comes on. He starts singing this is the new shit. And then we transition over to Mardi Gras, Bourbon Street. Woo-hoo! Hey, Alma, remember how I told you I went to uh, Mardi Gras? Oh, my God. Thalia met Hootie and Weird Al Yankovic on <laughs> Bourbon Street. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm almost positive that I saw Hootie and the Blowfish. You that called one, me. I- you said it was Hootie. Because I'm convinced that it was Hootie from Hootie and the Blowfish. I'm telling you. Anyways, <laughs> and then it was nighttime, and of course, it's extremely crazy crowded on, on Bourbon Street. And I'm telling you that I fucking saw Weird Al, me and my friend were walking, see him walking by. I don't know. I never actually looked to see if it was ever actually him, but it looked exactly like him. I wasn't that drunk. And when I saw him, I said, oh my God, it's you. And he goes, yeah, it's me. But it could have been some just random dude that said, yeah, it's me. (laughs) Okay. So that was my Mardi Gras experience. Nothing like this Mardi Gras experience that we're talking about here. So there's no hoodie. There's no weirdo. But we got two best friends that are walking. I guess there's a group of uh, friends, but it's specifically we're talking about two best friends. And I'm going to call them Bud and Debbie Downer, because yes. Alma can come in later and tell us their real names. I'm super bad with names. Let's just go with it. Debbie Downer is really depressed because he just broke up with his girlfriend and he's bringing the party down. They're all like, woohoo, it's Bourbon Street. Let's party. Let's do all these things. That's Ben. And the other friend that sticks with him, we're calling him Bud because he was on the Cosby show. Come on, everybody. That's going to be his name for the rest of this um, episode. Yeah, he was Bud from the Cosby show, and that's how we know him. And that's, I not call him Bud. Anyways, so we got Debbie Downer, Bud, and they're talking and everything. And finally, 
Debbie Downer goes, okay, you know what? I really want to take this haunted bayou tour. But okay, I'll give into this because I want to cheer you up a little bit. So they go to this shop where supposedly they do the tours out of. And who opens the door? Candyman. Candyman opens the door. Yeah, it's him. It's the legit Candyman. He's come to take you from this movie back in time into his movie. That was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was mean. I should not have said that. I should not put that in there. Okay. Okay. So Candyman tells them, you guys, I'm not doing those tours anymore. I got sued for like bad stuff. You're going to have to go down to over there to Mr. Voodoo and do the tours over there. So they're all bummer. We really wanted to do it with you, Candyman. But Candyman's like, nope, keep on walking. They go down to Mr. Voodoo and I'm saying Mr. Voodoo because I think that's what it was called. They go into the shop and they're we want to do this tour. I have to let you all know that at the same time that this is going on, just randomly... There are two women in the shop with some pervert, and that's what I call them the rest of the time, because throughout the whole movie, I kept calling them pervert. Pervert is filming them for a what looks like an adult movie. Hey, Alma, do you remember how, I don't know, were you with us when we did, when we were in New Orleans? This is not when I was at Mardi Gras. This is like many years later. But when we did that ghost, no, no. See, we did a ghost history tour during one of the times we went to New Orleans. And then another time we did the cemetery tour. Do you remember that? I don't know when, but we've been a couple of times together and we definitely did one ghost tour and another cemetery tour. Anyways, that's what I was thinking about when during the scene, because it was, it looked very familiar walking into those little voodoo shops and trying to sign up for one of the tours. So they sign up for the tour and then all these people suddenly show up. They get into vans and they have to drive out to the bayou because it is a, what is it, like a ghost bayou tour And now we are meeting the rest of the cast, the rest of the tour group. And we have the two young ladies that are going to be in that adult movie with Mr. Pervert. We have uh, Bud and Debbie Downer. And then we now have a couple, an older couple from Minnesota or Michigan. Do you remember? Yeah, it's somewhere up north. And Dali is totally glossing over the fact that Harmony from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel is in this movie. I guess Dali was not a fan because <laughs> I was like, it's Harmony from freaking Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She shows her boobs a lot in this. So if you never you like were like wondering, oh, I wonder what her boobs look like. And we never got to see them on year for years on television. Yeah, she shows her boobs a lot in this movie. I didn't mention that because I don't know who that is. And I never watched that. That's what I'm you gloss over because you didn't know I guess you didn't know but yeah that's Harmony and I I loved her on the show yeah it it was funny and then we have uh, Debbie Downer in the back sitting with a female Debbie Downer she's sitting there's a lady sitting in the back and they're talking and just kind of making time go by but what I thought was funny in this scene is do you remember the music was very it was very jaunty it was very Disney and it was just like this seems very out of place the music that they're using I think they use the same soundtrack that from Princess and the Frog. It's the same. I looked it up. Trust me. Okay, so they finally show up to their destination. They get out of the vans and they start walking over to the boat. And they get in and some random fisherman across the way is yelling at them. And the tour guide is like completely ignoring them and trying to start the boat so quick that me and Alma start wondering, is he stealing that boat? Does that boat belong to the fisherman? But no, it turns out... it's because he wanted to get away from the guy who was telling him that it was closed. 
So as they make their way down the bayou, the fisherman gets off one last warning. You're all going to die. I said, oh, fuck, of course. Again, warning ignored. All right, so they're on the tour, and the tour guide is trying to scoop them out. Very scoopy stuff. And he starts to tell them the story of Victor Crowley, which is, I guess, apparently the hatchet dude that we're going to be talking about the rest of this movie. This story was so fucking depressing. Okay, first, the tour guide tells the story all wrong. He gives some kind of like generic story. And then he gets interrupted by the female Debbie Downer. And she's, that's not even the real story. And the tour guide gets all upset because nobody was really enjoying his stories and everything. And truthfully, he was pretty bad tour guide. Yeah, the female Debbie Downer is, okay, this is the real story. And the story she tells of who we are going to call Hatchet now, is so fucking depressing. So sad. He's a disfigured little boy who is raised by his single father. And his father was so sweet and kind to him and kept him out of public so that he can be protected so that he doesn't get made fun of or looked at weirdly or anything like that. But of course, people are mean, children are cruel, and they pick on him and they do all these things to him. And one day they come, these kids come to his cabin and they start playing with fireworks, throwing them at the house because they want to scare him. They want to spook him. And the little boy is stuck inside, Victor Crowley. All right. So the dad comes home and he finds the place on fire and he's trying to get out the little boy. So he grabs an axe or a hatchet. So I'm going to go with hatchet since the movie's called a hatchet. The movie's called hatchet, but he actually uses an axe because a hatchet's supposed to be small. I don't want to yeah. be a nerd here or anything, but it was technically an axe. So he starts chopping away at the door because he's trying to chop it down to get inside. But unfortunately, little Victor Crowley has his, and I'm calling him little. I think he's actually older by now, but I'm telling you, his story was fucking heartbreaking. I feel for him. So he's pressed up against the door, obviously, because the fire is getting very close to him and he's trying to stay away from it. And then the father accidentally, when he chops through, he hits Victor's head and He is the cause of Victor Crowley's death. This completely devastates him and kills him. And while he doesn't die right away, the father, Victor Crowley, unfortunately does. The father ends up dying, I think they say like a few years later, from a broken heart. Yeah, it was a real sad story. This chick is only bringing the sadness to this movie. She's totally not the final girl. I really looked at her like, this is going to be the final girl, but I don't know something about her. And this story is just like putting everybody in a really not good mood. Yeah. I'm like, I want to be cheering for Hatchet now because he had such a sad life and all his dad wanted to do was just take care of him. And he was fucked with. I'm not saying that these people deserve to die in real life. I'm not like that. But in the movies, I'm like, yeah, maybe these people deserve to die because poor Hatchet was really treated like shit when he was little. But I digress. So they continue on down the bayou. The tour guide's doing a really shitty job of spooking them out of doing the tour and all of a sudden they hit a rock and a thunderstorm begins (laughs) it's so weird they hit a rock and they're like oh shit we're stuck so they're trying to get unstuck but they're not really trying to get unstuck because me and Alma were like 
Shouldn't they be like trying to reverse or something? They're completely panicking for no reason. He's not even trying to figure out a way to get there. He hits a rock and that's the end of the boat. Apparently the boat just cannot move because there's a rock. They're not trying to figure anything out. For some reason, the rain and this rock freak everybody out to an unreasonable amount of freaking out here. And that's all I want to say. <laughs> She's right because it was really ridiculous. It starts raining and they start trying to get off the boat now. But there's a bit of a distance between the boat and the shore, which I don't know. I didn't think it was that big of a distance, but whatever. It wasn't that far. (laughs) They start talking about, okay, we're going to go on that tree right there. Where did that fucking tree come from? We're going to jump on that tree and we're going to walk over to the shore. And they're like, okay, let's do this. And actually the old man, Mr. What was his name again from Michigan? Mr. Michigan, he decides that he's going to go first and he's the older gentleman. And I thought, why the fuck aren't these other young guys? I'm not saying that he shouldn't go first, but the other ones, like Alma had said earlier, were freaking out for no reason. And this older gentleman is the one that decides he's going to go across first. And I'm like, dudes, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? He decides he's going to start going across the tree and then chomp. Gator comes out and grabs at him. We actually thought he, I did. I actually thought he was going to die. And then when I realized he didn't get killed, I thought that the gator took his whole leg. Nope. He just got chomped a little bit. I'm sure it hurt a lot, but he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's hurt, but he's fine. So anyways, now all of a sudden, everybody has to get across quickly because uh, I don't know, alligator made the boat start sinking faster. I'm not sure what's going on with the water, but to me, it looked like an ocean of waves just starts to overtake the boat for some reason. And I'm like, oh, so we're all of a sudden in the ocean. Waves of water are overcoming the boat and starting to sink it. Yeah, it was like waves. It's like they were in a hurricane out in the ocean. It was really ridiculous. But anyways, so they start all just making their way onto shore and they get out there and they're good. Not really, but at least they're on shore now. They're all still a little bit panicking, but they're a little bit more calm now. And Mr. Michigan's there bleeding from his leg. And the whole time he's bleeding there, I'm, why doesn't anybody fucking take off? They're all very layered. This is the early 2000s clothes. Like one of the chicks is wearing a skirt and leggings. And so they could, somebody could easily lose a article, an article of clothing and not miss it at all. They should have wrapped that shit up to stop that bleeding, but they didn't. The thing is, with all the blood and gore in this movie, he didn't look that injured. He doesn't appear to be losing lots of blood, but they are all losing their minds over this injury. They don't know any kind of first aid. And he's shivering and talking about he's cold and acting like he's dying, but nobody's helping him. Yeah, so he says that he's cold, and I'm like, that means he's bleeding out. He's fucking bleeding out if he says he's cold, but yet nobody's doing anything about it. And I just remember thinking during that time, it's like, Alma, you fucking broke your toe in my house and you didn't act this horrible. I know it's just a toe, but it still hurt. I just mentioned it yesterday. I just taped it up and like the air hurt it to move. It just hurts really bad. And I just ignored it. I don't, I think I would have survived the alligator attack. I'm just saying. So then they suddenly, for some reason, figure out that they're next to Victor Crowley Hatchet's house. Like, Just out of nowhere, they happened to be hit the rock and the thunderstorm ended up making them get next to Hatchet's house. 
Yeah, it's apparent that Debbie Downer has some sort of background information because she insists that's his house. She knows everything, but she is just completely freaking everyone out. She's hysterical. She's making everyone hysterical. She's really ruining like any kind of let's survive and let's... All they had to do was walk together in a straight line somewhere, and she's freaked everybody out so much that they're just, what do we do? And screaming all over the place. Yeah, that was really annoying because for a final girl, I really wanted her to be a little bit more calm and have a better plan of action, but she didn't. And all she did was rile everyone up. And this, I thought, was a very survivable event. I don't know. Of course, I'm not out in the bayou stuck with Hatchet chasing me or anything like that. But anyways, like I said, they're magically next to Hatchet's house. And they realize that they need to get away from it because female Debbie Downer told them that scary story. So they decide they're going to make their way to the road. And they're looking around. It's okay, where the fuck is the road? Because nobody, this 2000, what, six, seven, I guess we didn't have the internet on our phones at the time. Maybe not. So how the fuck did we do anything? without our fucking iPhones. Obviously, I grew up in the time without these phones and without the internet on my phone or easily accessible. And I got around. I did shit. But now I am so dependent on my fucking phone that I will be in a new city and I will pull out my phone to walk, to fucking walk down the street. Anyway, so they're looking for the road and a female Debbie Donner tells them, oh, it's on the other side of fucking Hatchet's house. How the fuck does she know that? Because later on we found out we find out she's never even been there. So she knows where Hatchet's house is. She know where she knows where the fucking road is. I don't know. Anyway, so they decide that they actually need to get to the other side of Hatchet's house so they can get to the road. Again, she got them so riled up that they don't want to move, but Mr. and Mrs. Michigan decide that they're going to go. They're, again, I like that. It was weird that they just put them there out of nowhere. But I like that they were the ones that were always ready to lead the way and fucking go. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out for them. <laughs> okay, we can hear Hatchet at this point. He's moaning for daddy in the background. Just moaning for daddy. I couldn't tell that that's what he's saying, but Thali had the subtitles on. So she said, he's saying daddy. I love the energy that Scary Chick is giving off here. The one who's making everybody Debbie Downer. She's got everybody worked up. The two old people, they take off together because he needs help. And they just let them wander off together. They take off arm in arm, all cute. And who appears? It's freaking Hatchet, man. He shows up. I don't know why we're calling him Hatchet. He got killed by Hatchet. I think his name should be just Sad Boy. Can we feel bad for him? But I guess we don't feel bad for him because he starts hacking off the old guy's arm in the weirdest way possible. Why is he hacking like that? I'm screaming at the TV. He's just hacking off like between his neck and his shoulder in the ugliest fashion possible just like it was horrific i loved it he's hacking off his arm he's tearing his face apart he's hacking off his arm and then he just rips his head off i think i don't know there's a lot of blood there's a lot of gore and then who does he come for he comes for the poor woman who starts to run away so he's tearing off her head like in the old those old toothpaste commercials where they're trying to reach the back teeth on the back of their head and just ripping off the top of her head <laughs> and then her tongue is like licking the air hysterically it was done really good though wasn't it because we loved it we were like yes it's him and why are we re- we were totally cheering on hatchet weren't we 
Yeah, I don't know if I was cheering him on as much as I was cheering on the effects because they were absolutely ridiculous and fun. Like the fucking misting of the blood again. I'm like, since when does blood mist like that? And when he fucking tears her face apart, I'm like, he's ripping her face apart. It's actually him pulling her jaw apart. And then her little tongue is like, la, 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 at the end. <laughs> That's exactly what we're doing. We're going, la, 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 at the screen. Okay, so we're terrible. We're awful people. But these aren't real people, so it's okay. Okay, so Slezoid takes off into the woods, drops his camera, and bumps into Hatchet. Woohoo! Hatchet's there to save the day. He tears and twists his head almost off. Remember, I remember writing that down because it was almost off. Not all the way. And then they use Dahlia's favorite blood misting machine to show that there's blood everywhere. That's Dahlia's favorite machine. She says she'll go to order on Amazon. It gets here, I think, on Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) When we meet back with the group, they're walking and wandering and they bump into the camper bag. And that's when they find the camper bag. And they open it up and they find out Mr. Sleezoid wasn't even a camera uh, movie guy. He was just like some pervert who had been taking fun naked pictures of them for no reason. And I think that means that we don't have to feel bad for him because he was an imposter of some kind. Harmony finds her cell phone. And yeah, she had a cell phone, except she somehow dropped it for no reason. But that's when they realized that they had been walking in circles. So they shouldn't have been listening to Debbie Downer chick because she didn't even know where they were going. And she's the one who told them to go in that direction. They find her phone that she had dropped along the way and they discover that they've been walking around in circles. And what song's playing on her phone? I don't want to wait for our lives to be over. (laughs) The best song ever. And uh, okay, she has her cell phone now and they discover that there's only like a little bit of battery on it, but no reception. It was pointless back then anyway, because we didn't have cell phone towers everywhere. We really didn't have good reception when you had a phone. I remember, I think I had one and it had a little pull out antenna thing and you'd hold it up in the air and hope to like the alien space gods that you could get some reception. Anyway, they're back on their way and they're trying to walk in the direction of people or the hell out of there. Oh yeah, this whole time you can hear ghost sounds out in the woods. Hatchet is moaning for his dad. He's probably crying because he's dead and he or maybe he's not dead. I don't know. He's been physical this whole this whole time. I insist that he's still alive. They make it back to his house because this is Debbie Downer's plan and Debbie Downer man. They decide that if they go back to his place and they're going to catch him and then that would help them get away. So who's dead at this point now, Alma? I've lost. We have Mr. and Mrs. Michigan. We got pervert dude. We got, oh, yeah. Suddenly your friend Harmony is killed out of the blue, right? Okay, so Harmony's not dead yet. The next girl to die is her friend, the one who's been bickering with her. But Hatchet shows up with a sander. He has a freaking sander that nobody heard. I don't even know what those things are operated by. I thought they ran on power cords or something. Anyway, he takes the sander and sands this chick's face off. Okay, so that chick's not dead. He turns to the other guy. The whole time, we're completely forgot, but the boat guy, the, the tour guide, he's still alive. And Hatchet just whacks his leg off and everybody's screaming and hysterical and he goes back to kill the chick because she's still alive. That chick is still alive and I think he used a shovel to take her head off. Anyway, they're dead. 
They're freaking dead and all kinds of gore and blood everywhere. Harmony dies at some point, but remember, I think you didn't notice it either. I think it's probably because Hatchet was just killing these two people and somewhere in the mix, she gets killed. While they're rifling through the little house, they find a Debbie Downer chick's dad and and the brother. They're dead in this like big pile of gore. At first I made a joke like, maybe they're not dead, but they're in pieces and Harmony's head hits one of them or something. Anyway, they're dead. They're freaking dead and all kinds of gore and blood everywhere. They find gasoline. That was their plan. They got the gasoline because they're going to lure him into the house and set him on fire. So the only people left alive right now are the two Debbie Downers and Buds outside who's supposed to be keeping a lookout. Harmony's dead and Hatchet comes in, but at least they have a plan because they do attack him with a pitchfork and they knock him down. They pour gasoline on him and set him on fire. But then who comes to save Hatchet's day? The rain, the heavens open up and start crying those sad tears because they see poor Hatchet there writhing in pain from the fire. Like, really, what the fuck? They set him on fire? I know, that's kind of mean because didn't he already die almost by fire and then a Hatchet? Uh, Regardless, we're obviously rooting for Hatchet and even Heaven is rooting for him because they sent the rain to save him. So the rain puts him out and they all run stupidly into the night. He catches up to them somehow because even here's some more help from Heaven. He somehow ends up in front of them. He catches them, beats them. They're fighting with each other. There's like a tussle and they... Oh my God, Hatchet gets Bud. At to this point, I'm all rooting for Bud to survive. And we love him, but somehow he catches him and he's dead too. They all die really bloody and gory. I think he ripped his arms off and then Dalia's favorite spray mister, bloody spray mister, spends his blood everywhere. All right, so Bud is deader than dead and Hatchet is finding supplies from all over the place to murder these two guys. They take off and I think they find a boat And she's, oh, my dad's boat, because of course she knows exactly what her dad's boat looks like in the middle of the night. She didn't even live with him or anything like that. And they hop in the boat to take off into the the bayou. So final couple is on the boat. And that's when Dahlia had mentioned that this was totally Friday the 13th ending. The music, we should look it up. It totally sounded exactly the same they go out onto the water and it's like this fogginess to it do you remember the end scene it's so beautiful and they're both just drifting off into the water and Dali was like this is Friday the 13th this is Friday the 13th and all of a sudden who comes jumping out of the water Jason Voorhees style hatchet he fucking jumps out hatchet comes out and he pulls I think female Debbie Downer down and I'm like Oh my fucking God, I knew it. It was so Friday the 13th. I really wasn't get the vibes where they were out on the boat. It was nighttime on this one versus daytime and Friday the 13th. But it was just like, I got the feels for it and everything. And then again, this is just a movie so I can cheer on the bad guy. Okay, guys. But I'm all like, oh my God, Hatchet, he did it. He did it. And he pulls her down and I'm like, what's going to happen? And then she's drowning. And what comes down into the water? The dude's hand. So I remember when I see his his hand come down, because it looks like he's putting his hand down there to help her, male Debbie Downer. I'm like, his hand looks weird. So I thought he was dead up there. That was my thought. Okay, so now we've established that Hatchet has supernatural powers of teleportation. Because he was down there and he pulled the chick down and she's drowning. And then all of a sudden, he's on the... He's on the boat with Debbie Downer, dude, holding his hand. 
he ripped that guy's arm off and was holding it in the water to get her to get back on the boat. And that's it. That's the end of the fucking movie. That's it. And that's when we immediately went over and Googled it. We Googled it. And that's when we found out this was three movies. It's three movies that we need to watch one after the other in order to get the whole story. So, yeah, that's why we're going to watch the other two. And we'll do that as one episode. It's not that I'm not excited to see what happened. I just wish I had known about it beforehand so we could have planned it better. But... Oh, now we know. And just to recap, let's do a body count for Hatchet so far. We have the dad and the son. That's two. We have old man and Mr. Michigan and his wife, Mrs. Michigan. We have Bud there from the end. We have Harmony and her friend, Mr. Sleezoid and Boat Tour Guide. That's nine. Did I miss anyone? I think that's it. That's a pretty good body count. I hope he doubles it for part two. So I thought it was a fun movie. Very just ridiculous blood, gore and everything. But it was fun. I liked it. I loved it. It was excellent. It was excellent gore. I love the jump scares. The jump scares are my favorite because I startle easily. It's like a... It has to do with something I do. But anyway, I startle easily. So every one of those jump scares is fun to me. It gets my heart pumping. All the gore that was... It wasn't... Too, it wasn't cheesy to me. I liked it. It was fun. It was really fun. It's definitely not scary. I, I don't think I was ever scared during this movie, but it was a fun watch. All right. So now I'm going to do the awkward transition over to the real world connection. I'm going to be talking about something that is completely different than the subject of Hatchet. And it feels weird, this transition that I'm doing, but this is just so interesting that I wanted to share this. I'm going to be talking about the Jenna Band of Choctaw Indians of Louisiana. Now, I was looking at trying to get some information on the bayou area around New Orleans. And when I started doing that, I started seeing information about the Native American tribes from that area. I found these two articles. Actually, that's a lie. One of them is a book and it's called The Choctaw of Bayou Lacombe, St. Tammany Parish. And it is a book from 1909 by David I. Bushnell Jr. This book is available online at the Smithsonian Institution. And it is so fucking badass because they have the actual book uploaded. And it's all how old books. I fucking love old books, you know, they get all brown and yellow and, and weathered. And if you were to smell it, that smell of that really old, oh my gosh. So anyways, but I'm looking at it online. So I found that book and then I found another interesting article. It's called Jenna Band of the Choctaw Tribe by Elizabeth Ellis. And that's from 64parishes.org. I'm going to go ahead and just read from these two sources, some information that I got from both of them. And I will be linking these two sources in the episode description. So first I am going to share from Jenna Band of the Choctaw Tribe by Elizabeth Ellis. The Jenna Band of Choctaw Indians is one of four Louisiana tribes recognized by the federal government and one of seven recognized by the state. Now the reason I'm giving this information on the Choctaw Tribe is because the book that I'm going to share from 1909 speaks about the Choctaw tribe, so I want to make sure I give a little bit of background information on that. In 2011, the Jenna Band of Choctaw Indians reported 284 members. 
That's in 2011. That is sad. The modern tribe comprises of descendants of the historic Choctaw Nation who coalesced after the collapse of the Mississippian chiefdoms in the early 16th century. Though much of the tribe's history took place in present-day eastern Mississippi, Choctaw people began arriving in Louisiana in the 1770s, many searching for better hunting grounds. Despite repeated attempts by the United States to force them from their land, members of the tribe continue to inhabit parts of Catahoula and LaSalle parishes in the east central part of the state. And I know I am fucking up a lot of these pronunciations and I apologize. I'm trying. I know this is just one little paragraph that I'm sharing from Elizabeth Ellis's article, but I wanted to just give a quick little background. And that was I am doing a great disservice by not sharing more. However, I wanted to share this, and I'm going to read it directly from her article. The Trail of Tears, the term that came to describe the suffering and death that resulted from the Indian Removal Act's forced emigrations, was derived from a Choctaw chief's words, quoted in an Arkansas Gazette article. He called the journey a trail of tears and death. While the bulk of the Choctaw Nation was thrust from its land, some Louisiana Choctaws successfully avoided resettlement in the government-controlled reservations. The ancestors of the Jenna Bend were among them. Many of these Choctaws eventually settled in present-day Catahoula and LaSalle parishes. Now, the 1908 book that was written about the Choctaw Indians that I'm about to read from is speaking about the tribe that was settled in the Lake Pontchartrain area that was northeast from New Orleans and across Lake Pontchartrain. But now they are, the nation is actually more northwest. My geography sucks, but it's more northwest of the state of Louisiana. So it's two completely different regions now. But the reason I found this information is because I was looking at the New Orleans area and the Bayou area from there. So I didn't want to confuse anybody because if anybody's familiar with the Choctaw Nation, they probably, I'm sure, know that they're not near New Orleans now, but they were at one time. Okay, so now I'm going to read from the Choctaw of Bayou Lacombe, St. Tammany Parish. And this is written by David I. Bushnell, Jr. The beginning of the book reads like this. From December 1908 until April 1909, the writer was in Lower Louisiana, the greater part of the time being spent in St. Tammany Parish on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain, not far from New Orleans. During this period, frequent visits were made to the few Choctaw still living near Bayou Lacombe. The notes obtained as a result of these visits are now presented on the following pages. And I flipped through this book and it was Oh my God, like I said, it was just so cool. I wish I could like hold it in person, but it's a little over 37 pages. It's 37 written pages, but then a lot of photographs, like photographs of the uh, people that lived in the Choctaw Nation, children, babies, moms, dads, just very interesting. And they're just, they're such good photographs, so much detail. Sometimes we look at pictures from this time frame and they look far away and a little blurry, but these are really close up pictures of some of the pottery, some of the baskets that they make, a little baby. Like when you see the picture of the baby, it looks like it's just a picture of a baby of today, but then you use like the black and white filter on it. It's, it's like these photographs are that good. So much detail, so beautiful. So if you get a chance, look at this book, flip through it. 
It's so interesting. I, I, you won't regret it. Okay, so the entirety of the book is fascinating, but I wanted to read this excerpt from Crimes and Punishments, and this is uh, relayed directly by the author David Bushnell Jr., and this is when he's spending time there interviewing people and taking their stories directly and writing them. And while I was flipping through the book, I saw that he actually did a really good job. I don't know anything about David Bushnell Jr. And I hope that I don't find out that I am reading from somebody who is like just a really terrible person. But the brief little history that I saw on him is that this is what he did. He would go traveling around the United States and visit indigenous people and go and talk to them and take down their stories and try to write down as much of their living history as much as possible. All right, so crime and punishments. I'm going to read directly from the book, so please don't be confused because there's going to be they're going to be referring to a few years ago. It's not our present time. This is from the 1908 viewpoint. Until a very few years ago, no Choctaw could be brought legally before a court in Louisiana to answer for any crime. Even murder, provided such crime was perpetrated against another member of the tribe. Murder was the one great crime recognized by the Choctaw, and the life of the murderer was invariably claimed by the friends or relatives of the victim. It is said that murderers seldom attempted to escape, holding it a duty to their families to receive the punishment of death. To attempt to escape was regarded as a cowardly act, which reflected on every member of the family. If, however, a murderer did succeed in escaping, another member of the family usually was required to die in his stead. The following account of a native execution, the last to occur according to tribal custom, was related by the two women at Bayou Lacombe. This event occurred some 30 years ago at a place not far from Abita Springs. One night, two men who were really good friends, not enemies, were dancing and drinking with many others when they suddenly began quarreling and fighting. Finally, one was killed by the other. The following day, after the murderer had recovered from the effects of the whiskey, he realized what he had done, and knowing he would have to die, he went to the relatives of the murdered man and told them he was ready to meet his doom. But he asked that he be allowed to remain with them about two weeks longer, as he did not want to miss a dance to be held within that time. To this they consented, and during the following days he was given many small presents pieces of ribbon, beads, and tobacco. He was treated by everyone, by old and young alike, with the greatest respect and kindness. All endeavored to make his last days enjoyable. At last came the event on account which his life had been prolonged, and for three days and nights all sang and danced. The next day, just at noon, when the sun is directly overhead, was the time fixed for the execution. Shortly before that time, his friends and relatives gathered at his house where he joined them. All then proceeded to the cemetery for the execution that was to take place on the edge of the grave that he had himself dug. The murderer stood erect at one end of the grave and with his own hands parted his shirt over his heart. Four of his male friends stood near with their hands on his shoulders and legs to keep his body erect after death. His female relatives were on each side and all were singing loudly. Soon he announced that he was ready. A relative of the murdered man advanced and pressing the muzzle of a rifle against the murdered murderer's chest, fired. As provided for, the body was held in an upright position and immediately a piece of cloth was inserted into the wound to stop the flow of blood. 
Late that afternoon, the remains were placed in the grave, which was filled with earth without, without ceremony. I decided to share this part of the book, not to glorify death or capital punishment, but because I found their justice system at that time rather interesting. Not only did they have a process for dealing with the crimes that I thought seemed rather orderly, if you can say that, but also the criminal, the murderer in this case, was a part of the process and they accepted their punishment. They involved the family of the criminal and they involved the family of the murdered person. They allowed him that peace to be able to attend a special dance. And not only did they allow that, but they treated him kindly. They gave him gifts. And what really struck me in this story was they talk about how his friends held him so that when he dies, he's standing erect. And they hold him by his arms and they hold him by his legs. And I'm thinking this whole time, it's first of all, that must be really tough for them as friends. They're about to say goodbye to their friend. And then I remembered the man who he killed was also their friend. Because if you remember, they're, they're friends. They were, he killed his friend when he was drunk. So these four friends now are losing two of their friend group. And that, that just really, that was heartbreaking when I, was, when I thought of it that way. There was just so much tragedy on all sides, but they did it with such, I wish I could have that level of consideration and respect for in, in my life in general. Now I'm just babbling. So <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted to share today. And I, like I said, I know a little awkward transition there, and now I'm awkwardly transitioning out of this. But either way, I really enjoyed this book. And like I said, it is available on the Smithsonian Institute's website. I am linking it. Please look through it, read it. It is so interesting. And if even if you don't want to read the entirety, it's like I said, it's only 27 pages. Look at the photographs. They are absolutely stunning. Just after this episode, go click on the little link and just take a look and you're welcome. All right, Alma, help me out here. <laughs> So what is going to be our next movie or movies? We're doing Hatchet 2 and 3. And I hope they're up on Amazon Prime too, because otherwise we're screwed. <laughs> we're going to watch them, but I don't want to fucking pay for this. Yeah, well, uh, they're not worth it. <laughs> no, don't cut that out because we're covering the movies. It's mean. Okay. All right. So how can people find us outside of listening to our podcast? You can email us at nightmaremoviepodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at nightmaremoviepodcast, on TikTok at nightmaremoviepodcast. And if you haven't guessed it, our website is probably nightmaremoviepodcast.com. Oh my God, it's so easy. It's so easy. And if you check out our TikToks, it's just a lot of our animals. <laughs> They're glorious. If you don't want to look at cats and dogs, maybe we don't want to look at you. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> All right. Until next time.
thank you for tuning in to Nightmare on Fifth Street, a horror movie podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and let us know what horror movie you would like us to discuss. Thank you for listening.